we have Danny to continue the Acts series. So let's give it up for Danny. Happy Father's Day, Danny. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Just a, by way of reminder, continue to be praying for our uh, short-term mission team in Brazil. Uh, as you might remember, JT and Michael are leading a team of, of 12 people. They're down on the Amazon. This last week, they had a great time out on the river, going to different communities and just experiencing uh, that, uh, that setting. This week, they did a conference at the Makapa Vineyard, the vineyard uh, there on the mouth of the Amazon. They did a conference. They'll be uh, participating in the worship there today. And then later on this week, they're going out to the bush, uh, not by boat, but by uh, four-wheeled uh, four vehicle to get out and to do some ministry out in a, a small area where there's a, a gathering of, of uh, Christians and ministering to them. So be in prayer for our short-term mission team. They'll be returning, I think, next Monday or something like that. When are they returning, Laura? Next Monday. What time exactly? <laughs> okay, so let's go ahead and pray and, uh, and ask the Lord to be with us. Father, I, I just thank you so much for this study through the book of Acts. Lord, what a, what a rich, rich history. And Lord, as we approach, as we approach this, uh, this book, we ask that you would use it to help us to, to not only see your heart and your purposes, but to, to see ourselves. So Lord, we, we, don't want to just, uh, we don't want to just read your, your book. We want your book to read us and help us to, to understand who we are and how we can come to, to be more and more fully yours. So come and have your way with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now for this week and next week, for the next two weeks, I'm going to be going and looking at, we're going to be examining uh, chapters 8 and chapters 9 in the book of Acts. We've been, we've been uh, flying through these first initial chapters. And what I want to do is just to begin by looking at today the, the relative health of the early church. How, what was going on there? We, we saw in the earlier chapters, you might remember, just by, by way of, of reminder, in, in the earlier chapters of the book of, the book of Acts, we see the, the, the church, the gathering of God's people, the community of faith coming together. On the day of Pentecost, we see the, the birth of the church. And it began in, in the upper room. The church was established on that day by the power and the presence and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the, the church in, in Jerusalem, which was essentially led by the, the twelve, by the apostles, started with a bang. Not just because of the presence and the coming of the Holy Spirit, but because of the, the, the ingathering of so many, they had they had literally five thousand plus right from the from the beginning, right from the beginning of the of that church. So there was a dynamic there. There was an excitement there. There was there was something really substantial. But because the church was full of human beings, we saw also right from the beginning difficulties and issues that had to be addressed, both from within the church and from the outside. You remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, we saw how there was one issue that arose in the church, and that was that as they gathered together and, and shared meals together, some of the older widows weren't being fed, they, they, they're, all the, the chicken was gone, all that was left was, were the, the baked beans by the time they were eating. So what, what the apostles did is they set aside seven individuals, seven men, to make sure that as the church gathered together, it was done well, it was done orderly, it was done in, in a way that was fair and, and kind and, and generous. So they received at the beginning that there was, there was some selfishness within the church, but that's, that's natural because the church is made up of, of human beings. We also saw some real challenges, significant challenge, from outside the church. You remember last week, Heather taught about how there was persecution against the church that was, was coming with, with significant force. 
You remember last week we saw about the, the martyrdom of, of Stephen. Stephen was one of those early followers of Christ, and, and because of his faith and how outspoken he was, he was brought and was, was tried, essentially, and was stoned to death because he was unwilling to renounce that, that unwavering faith that he had. So the persecution in the early, against the early church was, was happening significantly. We also, and, I, and this is important, I want you to remember, one of the, the outcomes of that persecution of the church, and this is months, just a few months after it, the, the, the church was established on, at Pentecost, one of the, the things that God did in, with the, the environment, with the climate, with the difficulties, was he used even that horrible persecution against the church, that difficult time, God used it to help promote those things that God wanted to see happen. Because you remember, the last words of Jesus to the disciples, this was even before Pentecost, before Jesus arose to heaven and ascended to heaven, the last words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, was that they needed to understand that he was delegating his authority to them and he was commanding his disciples to understand their, their mission, their calling, which was to carry out Jesus' mission. His words to the disciples was, I want you to go and make disciples. In other words, you've seen how I've gathered you not just the 12, but the broader numbers. You've seen how I've gathered you and discipled you with both my words and, and, and by demonstration of, of God's presence and his power. I want you now to go and understand it's your calling, it's your commission, it's your job description to make disciples and to teach those disciples that you gather, not to yourself, but gather and point to me. It's, I want you to teach them all those things that I've taught you. Not just the, the content, not just teaching, you know, for the, for the cognitive benefit, but I want you to teach them so it's part of their lifestyle, so that they see and they absorb the attitudes and the heart and the, and the practices, the lifestyle of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he says, I want you to go make disciples in Jerusalem, right where you're at, in Judea, in this, in this area, but I also want you to go and make disciples in Samaria and then spread to the uttermost parts of the world. So it's, it's not just for you here in Jerusalem. It's not just for, for us and no more, but I want you to make disciples and see this good news and, and the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the, the purposes of God spread throughout the entire earth. First in Jerusalem and Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. But the problem was that the early church wasn't following those instructions. They just stayed in Jerusalem for months and months and months. They stayed in Jerusalem because, you know, I mean, you can imagine they had 5,000 saved on, at Peter's first sermon. They had a lot of work to do. And they stayed there also because it was a special time. And who wants to walk away from something that feels so special? They stayed there because they were enjoying, all but the, the widows, they were enjoying their time together. This was, this was a good time and God was weaving lives together. And, and who wants to spoil that flow? So rather than going to Samaria and to the further points in, on, on the globe, they just remain there, and God used the persecution. And the scriptures attest to this. God used the persecution, this difficult time in their life, in order to help the disciples and the early church accomplish his goals. That's a whole different sermon. But I'll say it one more time. He used the difficulties in their lives in order to
to accomplish his will and his purposes in their lives. And the persecution forced them, if you will, forced them out of the nest, forced them to go and leave Jerusalem, where the, which was the epicenter of that persecution. So today we're going to pick it up in, in uh, chapter 8, and we're going to start right after it says the persecution drove them and scattered them. We're going to pick it up in, in Acts chapter 4. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Okay, it says this. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip, now Philip was one of those seven men that was assigned to help administer and take care of the widows and, and just the, the, the details of that early church, sort of like a, like a deacon, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. So understand, Philip wasn't just proclaiming the word, he was demonstrating the presence of God, the power of God. It wasn't just proclamation, it was demonstration. He was, it says he, they saw, or that not only did they hear Philip proclaim the gospel, but they saw him with sign, uh, they saw the gospel, the goodness of God come, through signs and wonders, and all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, in verse 7, with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in the city. Now, I, I want us to understand something. One of the reasons why the 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 early church probably didn't rush to go beyond Jerusalem. It wasn't just they were having such a good time within Jerusalem. One of the reasons was the significant animosity that Jews and the early church, for the most part, the first hundred thousand Christians, it's, it's estimated, were 99.9% Jewish. And this Jewish, and they just saw themselves as a, as a fulfillment of, of the promises of the, of the, in the Old Testament. They saw themselves still as Jews. And a Jew just had tremendous animosity towards, towards the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. There were literally centuries, centuries, centuries of division and hatred and anger, and competition, and jealousy between the Samaritans and the Jews, and the Jews and the Samaritans. Their theology was, was different. Their attitudes were different. Their dress was different. Their lifestyle was different. Their, their culture was different. And they, there was the, the Jews saw the Samaritans as, as, as half-free. They saw them as people who were taking the, the pure faith of Judaism and, and twisting it. And the Samaritans, they hated the Jews and their, their pompous attitudes and looking down their noses at them. There was this hostility between the two. The Jew who was going to travel, because Jerusalem is in central southern Israel, for them to travel up to Galilee where Jesus was born, where Bethlehem, Capernaum, and so on were, they, they had to travel through Samaria. But there was such animosity between those two groups that if a Jew was going to go to Galilee, they would go uh, uh, on the other side of the Jordan because they didn't even want to go through the Samaritan uh, land, even though it was in, in uh, the direct line to Galilee, would have taken them there. So they'd go way around Samaria. They didn't want anything to do with them. So here we are, because of the persecution, Philip goes out, he's beginning to preach in Samaria, and I don't know, he probably expected he was going to be shooed on through, and they wouldn't receive him, and they would chase him out of Samaria, but he was a, an obedient person. And lo and behold, as he began to share about the goodness of, of who Jesus was and what he said and what he did and that he was the Messiah, the Savior, 
they began to respond. And as he prayed for different people, like Jesus taught the disciples to pray, they were healed. Demons were, set, were, were, were cast out. And I, I don't know whether, whether the Samaritans were more surprised or Philip. But all of a sudden you see heaven opening up and the kingdom of God, the presence of God, the rule and reign of God slicing in to Samaria just like it sliced in on the day of Pentecost, just as it sliced in to Jerusalem. And they began to believe. And there was a tremendous response. There was great joy in the city. It wasn't just a few people here and there. It was, it was revival in the city. It goes on to say, we'll skip down to verse 13. We, we understand there was a, a, an individual who apparently was fairly well known. An individual who lived in Samaria. He was a magician. He was a sorcerer. And his name was Simon. And, and listen to what it says about Simon the sorcerer. In verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by what great signs and miracles he saw. Something significant was going on in Samaria. So much so that this Simon, who, who was anything but a, a follower of, of Yahweh responded. Verse 14, it says, And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria, of all places, Samaria, had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now, I want to do something this week that I, I teach pastors not to do when they preach. What I want to do this week is I want to take some time to not just allow as we would normally do and as we should do as we go through the, the, the books of the Bible on Sundays, not just to let the scriptures speak for themselves, but I want to take a little bit of time to, to consider what was going on between the lines. Usually when we preach, we want to just look at the main and the plane of the scriptures and absorb that. And that's appropriate. And you know, we don't want to, you know, we, we don't want to avoid to understanding what the, the scriptures clearly are saying. But I believe God has, has encouraged me today to take a little bit of liberty and, and just consider what was happening and what was going on not only in the church in Jerusalem, the church in Samaria, but what was going on in, in the hearts of those, those individuals in Jerusalem as the Samaritans were responding to the gospel. And it doesn't take a whole lot of conjecture to imagine what was happening. When, when word came to, to the apostles and to the church in Jerusalem that the Samaritan uh, uh, individuals city-wide they were responding to the gospel. The signs and wonders were taking place. It doesn't take a great leap to, a, to imagine that there was a lot of, of inner struggle going on. The, the Samaritans are responding in mass. The Samaritans are, are, are coming to, to follow Jesus in mass. They want to have their churches, and they're going to be our brothers and sisters. And this is with years of hostility. It would be like going to the most fundamental Christian church in America and say, guys, God wants you to reach out to those uh, New Age Muslims. Go get them. Show them God's love. There, there may be such, such consternation, such division that it would be like, no, 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 they're, they're, we don't want to do that, not them. We'll go to people like us, but not them. And as, as God's power was coming, as the kingdom of God was slicing in and word came back to Jerusalem, it's not a great leap of, of, uh, of faith to assume that there was a lot of divided attitudes in the church in Jerusalem. You know, 
wait a second, this is going to change everything. What, what if those Samaritans infiltrate this church in Jerusalem? It's going to change who we are. We're, we're having a good time. We, we like each other. Things are going okay. But, but if those Samaritans, if they come to Christ, what, what's going to happen to our doctrine? What's going to happen to our pure theology? What might they bring into the church? What lifestyles? How, how, we don't like how they dress. You know, they, they dress strange. They, we don't want them to be around. We don't want to be around them. They're going to ruin everything. Not like us. They're going to contaminate the church. They're not going to add to it. It's one thing that we had 5,000 added to our number on, on the day of Pentecost. But they were Jews. They weren't Samaritans. You know, there's something that takes place in any church, in any group, family, circle of friends. And it's sort of like, it's like a surface tension. It's like when you have water, a glass of water, and you drop something onto the water, into the water, oftentimes it'll just float on top, right? It doesn't just sort of automatically go down to the bottom of the glass. And the reason is because liquids have a surface tension. You can't see it, but it resists items from entering in. And churches and groups and circles of friends and families and any time you get more than one person together, we oftentimes need to become aware there is a, a surface tension. You know, who is this new person? They're not like us. Do we really want them to be part of us? How might it change the dynamics? And indeed, that's oftentimes, that's why churches don't grow. That's why home groups don't grow. Because it's, you know, there's that desire just to keep the status quo, to keep that warmth and that connection and that, that continuity and to stay comfortable. And all of a sudden, the early church had to deal with this issue that not only they were, were they growing, but they were growing with individuals not like them, different from them. They were a tight-knit church or becoming a tight-knit church in Jerusalem and everything was turned upside down. And I believe for this reason, in part, is why the church in Jerusalem said, Peter and John, you need to go there and check out what's happening. You need to go and to see what exactly was, was Philip preaching that they responded. Make sure that he was preaching the, the pure, unadulterated word. Make sure that, that they're responding and coming to Christ and not just impressed with, with signs and wonders, chasing after miracle. We don't want them. We, we need to make sure that this is okay. Peter and John, you go check it out. And I'm sure there were some in Jerusalem hoping they'd come back and say, nah. No, they're, they're, they're just chasing after signs and wonders. Philip, Philip wasn't really preaching the gospel. Don't worry about it. The Samaritans aren't going to become part of the church. Don't worry. Or maybe, hopefully, the reason why they went to Samaria, Peter and John, was to, to see and, and authenticate what was happening because they knew for the church to accept the Samaritans as brothers and sisters someone of the stature of Peter or John needed to say, this is good and this is God and we need to embrace our new brothers and sisters. You see, one of the great threats uh, to the church or any group or any movement, denomination, is this exact issue. We, as a as a as, as people in our, in our fallen and broken nature are so given to jealousy, to competition, uh, 
We are so given to maintain the status quo, to maintain what is comfortable, that oftentimes, inadvertently, not because of our bad hearts, although it's not the best, oftentimes we, we push out the very move of God. I mean, this is something. There, there was probably uh, just a, a basic reading of this passage indicates there's probably more happening in Samaria through the ministry of, of uh, Philip than what was happening in Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem saw some signs and wonders on the day of Pentecost. We read Peter and John, and remember in Acts chapter, was it three or two, uh, saw a lame man healed when they entered the temple. But this seems to be widespread. This, this turned a whole, whole city upside down. There's great power taking place, and we're going to be talking a lot about that and why that occurred next week. But, but th this, was, this was something. This was incredible. And, and it, it, there's an issue that we need to recognize, and it's the disease of the heart that we fall into the, so easily into attitudes of competition and jealousy and envy and covetousness. You know, we want it for us, not for them. We, there's something within us. There's a two-year-old in every single one of us. At least I know there's a two-year-old inside of me, you know, that, that loves the word mine. Yeah. My church, my way, my desires, my comfort. We don't like to share like a two-year-old. You know, my Jesus, my Savior. I'm his child. He's my father. We don't like attention to be pulled away from ourselves. You know, in Jerusalem, they, we are it. Jesus came to us. He was our Messiah. He sent to, said, don't leave until you get the Holy Spirit. We got the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Just like he said, my Messiah gave me the Holy Spirit, my Holy Spirit in me. And now it's, they're getting it? Samaritans? They're seeing the power of God? They're experiencing the presence of God? It just wasn't going to fly. I believe this was going on in these verses. I remember when I was a, a, almost a brand new Christian, I, 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 was, I, I was just a hippie. I was 19 years old. I became a Christian. And there was a, in Mansfield, Ohio, back in the early 70s, there was a, essentially it was just a commune, a Christian commune that, that uh, a couple of pastors had begun and they began to minister to, to hitchhikers and hippies and, and Jesus freaks who were coming to Christ in great number. And I was among them. And it was, it was a special time. And we, it was a working farm. And we'd study in the morning and work the farm in the afternoon. And it was great. We didn't, you know, I mean, we, we were all alike. We were just all a bunch of strange people. But we loved Jesus. And it was, we were having a good time. And then all of a sudden a couple of youth groups in Mansfield and some of the, the, the mainline churches heard about what God was doing and were requesting, can we bring our youth group just to see what's, what's going on here and our young adults. And I remember there was one evening, it was Friday night, and a couple of the youth groups brought their, their uh, or a couple of churches brought their, their young adults to be part of our gathering and our worship and sharing time. And all these, these kids who were straight as an arrow, who loved Jesus, but didn't look like us, didn't dress like us, didn't smell like us, yeah, they, they infiltrated our meeting. And, and I remember what was going on inside of me. And after the meeting, I went up to, the, you know, to one of the pastors who was leading this, this, this time, and, and I said, you know, they're really changing what's going on here. It's, it wasn't the same tonight. And it was, all it was is just jealousy. It was jealousy. I mean, I, 
I, I didn't like it. And I remember the, the guy said to me, he said, Danny, what, what would you want us to do? Should we say, oh, Jesus is just for people with long hair? Jesus is just for people who dress a certain way? Jesus is just for certain individuals? But if it makes us uncomfortable, we need to close the door to other individuals? What would you have us do? Yeah, okay. I mean, I knew he was right. But it just made me see how there's something inside of us. Something inside of us that, that can easily rise up and become jealous, can, can, can covet, can become competitive. And the reason why I want to focus on this for us, even though it's, it's not the, the main and the plane of this passage, we'll be talking more about that next week, is because I believe that the, the, these issues of competition and jealousy and, and prejudice can have such a, a drastic effect because it is so easy to happen and not even be noticed. We don't even realize that there's this kind of surface tension in us, in groups, in churches, denominations, among friends. And I want us to look at today the, uh, the prognosis of this diseased attitude that's within us. When jealousy or pride or envy takes place, these are all what I would refer to as capital sins. That is to say, it brings about death, it destroys, it kills something. It either kills how we view the image of God in other people and blinds us to see the reflection of Christ in those who are not one of our own or groups that aren't our groups, our denomination, our friends, it either blinds us of, of God's reflection in them or it kills our own soul, our own spirit. Because instead of our eyes seeing and, and, and focusing on what Christ has for us, our eyes are diverted to what Jesus is doing in other people's lives and why is he blessing them and why isn't he judging them and why is he allowing this and why doesn't he you know, deal with that? It kills something in our ability to be who he's called us to be. That's why Paul says in Romans, he says, listen, don't, don't see yourselves in, in, in a, a distorted way. Don't view yourselves too highly. Don't view yourselves lowly, but see yourselves, know who you are with, with sober judgment. Understand that God has, has called us uniquely, every single person he's ever created, whether they're following him or not, he created us to reflect him. And every single one of us can reflect him in a way that no one who has ever lived on the face of the earth is able to reflect him into this, into this world. We are, we are created in, with incredible uniqueness, but so is everybody else. And when we separate ourselves in attitude or practice from others, all we've done is we've separated ourselves of part of that image of God that he wants us to see. Let, let me make this very, very practical and personal. I, I recognize in my life, and I, I'm assuming at least one or two of you can recognize in your life, that there, there's, there's something within us, there's something within me that the Bible calls my, my, my fallen nature, my flesh that is totally about one thing, me. Now, Jesus died so I can be set free from having to, to give over to my flesh, but this broken part of my nature, this fleshly desire that is all about me, 
is, according to the scriptures, going to be with me until Christ returns or until I die, and then I'll be set free. But until that moment, when I'm face to face with Christ, we all have this fallen nature within that we need to learn how to say no to. But our, our fallen nature wants to be center of attention. Our, our fallen nature wants to be in control. Our fallen nature wants to be comfortable. My fallen nature essentially just wants to have the world evolve around me. I mean, uh, simply put, my fallen nature, my flesh, wants to be God. Now, your flesh may not be quite so horrible. But if you think that you're deceived. Our fallen nature wants to be God. It wants to be seated on the throne. And that's why Jesus came, among other reasons. He's come so that we can no longer give opportunity to our flesh. That we can learn in increasing ways to say no to our flesh and yes to Christ. But, but we're, we're in bad shape if we don't recognize there's something broken inside of us that wants it our way. And part of that, when we're talking about life in the body of Christ... It's something that easily separates, easily pushes out. Whether the liberals are pushing out the conservative folks and the, or the conservatives are pushing away the liberal folks, there's, there's strife, there's competition. You know, those who have material things look down their nose at those who are so spiritually minded, they're of no earthly good. And those who are, are concerned with spiritual things look at those who are, you know, have material things and say, oh, they've just sold out, pushing against each other. You know, the, those who like the Golden State Warriors don't like those who like the Cavs and vice versa. We have, we have issues between Christians who who really love the presence and the power of God and the worship, and they look down their noses at those other churches that are just dry, and those churches that love the word and, and, and are viewed as dry by these guys, look down their nose about those guys are just into experience, and that's all they're wanting to pursue. Churches that are growing are viewed as, you know, they're just into numbers. The churches that aren't growing are, you know, are, are seen as, as being, you know, inwardly focused. There's just all this competition. We see it, you know, in, in schools. We see, you know, the jocks don't like the freaks. The nerds don't like the goths. But there is something within humanity that separates itself. And the enemy loves that because the whole nature and purpose of God's body is to take those that were once not a people and make them the people of God and to weave together men and women, adults and children who have just such a broad way of, of thinking and living and functioning and weave them together so we can see a fuller picture of God. And indeed, sometimes there is poor theology and at times there is, you know, some of the flesh that, that hasn't yet been overcome. Well, we don't want them around, do we? But the reality is this, that God is at work in them with great patience with great mercy. But he is at work in changing them, just like he's at work changing us. It's just that we're a lot more... <laughs> we like the grace and the mercy and the patience that God has for us a lot more than wanting to extend it or see God show grace and mercy for those other guys, right? Lord, why aren't you bringing your judgment on them. Do you see what they're doing? And Jesus is saying, son, daughter, I, I do. And I'm at, I'm at work, just like I'm changing things in you. Now get your eyes off of them. 
Keep your eyes on me so that you can be who I've called you to be and let me take care of my body. You see, jealousy and competition, covetousness and, and, and things like that, it, it's not an issue of the other person. It's really an issue that we have with God. Why aren't you fixing them? Why are you blessing them? Why are you moving in this other church? You know, you used to, you used to like us best. Everyone liked this church best. Now they're liking that other church. I, I remember when, when, we, when we came into, into this village, actually it was a few years ago, one of the pastors confessed to me, he said, Danny, I want you to know, and I confess this to you and ask your forgiveness, that when, when you were coming to the village and, and starting the vineyard, he said, I, I just, I don't want them here. I, I said to myself and to others, I said, I don't want vineyard in, in Sunbury. I said, I'm so sorry. And we, since we've become wonderful friends. But that's, that's just human nature. And, and I know the days are going to come when there's going to be some really hot church open up their doors in and around uh, you know, the, this part of, of Delaware County. And everyone's going to go and say, oh, <laughs> there's the cutting edge of the kingdom of God over there. But you see, the, the kingdom of God, first of all, doesn't have a cutting edge. <laughs> it has a growing and expanding edge. <laughs> and any church that thinks that they're the cutting edge, just hang in there. <laughs> you're going to realize, no, it's just expanding. It's getting bigger. But, but, but you're not going to be remaining that way. But there's something in us that resents when God is doing something else, right? You see that in yourselves? Am I the only one? And there's something in us, whether it's another church, another group of people, a family, a person at work who, who is experiencing something that you're not, it, it brings up competition inside of us. And that's something that we need to recognize and we need to deal with. What's the treatment? Let me end with this. How do we deal with this ailment of, of the fallenness that took place, the fall that took place in the, gar in, in the garden. How do we deal with it? Well, we deal with it, again, by setting our eyes where they ought to be set. By being able to, to keep our focus on Jesus. And if, if, if we need to focus on something else, let it be Jesus that puts his arm around our shoulders and says, look at what I'm doing over here. Just like I'm loving on you and showing you grace and showing you mercy and working in your life, look at what I'm doing. And if we could see others and we see his hand involved in other churches and other small groups and other individuals at, in our classes at work, we can see them through the eyes and with the eyes of Christ. Just rather than the eyes of our competitive fallenness and, and broken nature. See, when we're looking at others, when we see jealousy rise up within us, competition rise up within us, when we hear that voice inside of our head that is just resentful because of, of why someone else is experiencing God's blessing, or when we, on the other side of the coin, are saying, why don't I have what they have? There's something bad about me that, that I don't have what, the, what they're getting that we can understand. Now that, that's just my flesh. That's my fallen nature. Jesus, come and let me see and hear and draw into your presence once again. So what's the antidote to, to this issue? Well, number one, it's, it's worship. Corporate worship, private worship. And I'm not just saying singing songs. I'm talking about it's having a thankful heart. It's becoming attuned to the presence of God in our lives. Seeing what he is doing. Seeing how he is moving in us acknowledging who he is, making sure it's Jesus who's on the throne and that we haven't asked him to shove over so that we can become the center of the universe. And worship 
And thanksgiving is meant to maintain, to stabilize us in that, in that posture, to keep Christ front and center. So thanks, having a thankful heart, worship, helps keep us off the throne and Jesus on the throne, helps us to see ourselves and see others with, with sober judgment, with his perspective. The second thing that is, it helps us to, to not fall into these capital sins of jealousy and, and competition is by being sure that we stay woven together with the body of Christ. And, and by that, I don't mean just your three friends who are just like you and don't like anyone other than what you're like and what they're like, but staying woven together with the whole body of Christ. You know, you can, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And the church is a family. I mean, look around. We're a bunch of oddballs. I mean, we're different. We're, you know, that person sitting next to you, don't tell, don't tell them this, but they're strange. We, we are thrown together because we're different. That's why it says in Proverbs, just like iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. It's God's plan. Just like he used persecution, he uses us being together in a church where we don't get to choose who's sitting next to us, who's in our small group, who gathers with us on Sunday mornings or a, a Saturday night so that we can see Christ in all the, the glorious facets and, and that, that is resent, uh, representative of who he is. So by staying connected to the whole body of Christ, it helps us as individuals in our heart, and it helps our church as we're connecting and, and, and pray for other churches and appreciate other churches. It helps keep us, us centered. And finally, repentance. That's what we do when we see the competition, jealousy, envy, covetousness rise up in us, wanting what someone else has, resenting why someone else is getting something, competing with people and their, their blessings, their giftings, their, their uh, fortunate uh, situations. Repentance. When we see it rise up in us, say, Jesus, I know this, this is just my flesh. And I know that in and of myself, I'm powerless to just say, I'm not going to feel that. But Jesus, I, I acknowledge that this isn't reflective of your heart. I say no to my flesh. And now, Jesus, won't you work inside, from the inside out, freeing me from this attitude and putting your heart within me? That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't saying, I'm not going to think that way. I'm not going to feel that way. Don't covet. Don't covet. Don't be jealous. We, we don't have any power. Repentance is saying, Jesus, work in me what is pleasing to you. I, I conform my will with you. Now conform my heart with you, my attitude with you. Does that make sense? Why don't you stand up? You know, anytime we, we look at the scriptures, anytime we, we see what, what God is, has done or is doing, it, it calls for a response. We can't just learn information without there being any transformation. So here's what I want to do today. We're, we're going to just worship with one final song today. But I imagine if, you're, if, if some of you at least are like me, you recognize that there's that part of you that so easily falls into jealousy, into competition, whether it's with a, a, a relative, whether it's with someone else in the church, whether it's with a, another group of people, another church itself, whether it's, it's just people you work with. But you probably recognize there's competition, jealousy, envy that takes place. And I, I want to just invite us... To, to, as we, as we worship with this last song, to, if you want to, just come to the front, just between you and God, and say, Jesus, I see this attitude in me. I, I, I can't stop it just by an act of my will. So won't you come and begin to work this out of me? Won't you get my eyes off, off 
what you are doing in other people's lives or what I'm envying and wishing you were doing in my life. Help me to get my eyes off of those things and my eyes onto you and you alone. So just join me at the front if you wish. Make that exchange. Jesus, I give you this. Come and give me what you have for me. We just come before you this morning and we acknowledge that it is so easy for us to become jealous of, of what you're doing in someone else, through someone else, what you've given to someone else. We become so envious. We covet what others have. And Lord, we, we recognize that it's just our flesh. It's our fallen nature. But Lord, today as, as individuals, today as a church, we say no to those attitudes of our, of our flesh. And we say yes to you, Jesus. Come and, and just set us free. Come and give us your hearts. Lord, those who we, who we desire for you to bring your judgment on, sometimes for, for good reason, because we see sin in their lives, Lord, we, we give you permission, not that you need it, but we give you permission to work in your timing without having to answer to us. We, we acknowledge that you are being as gracious with others as you've been with us. Father, we just ask that you would give us as individuals, as families, as a church family, your heart, that we could, we could learn to see your reflection as, as dull as it may have become, to see your reflection as, as covered as it may be, but that we learn to see and to want to see your reflection in those you've created in other churches you've established, in other groups. Father, give us your heart. Give us your eyes. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Folks, God bless you all. Fathers, have a happy Father's Day. Don't forget, today is the last opportunity to sign your children, grandchildren, friends of your children up for the Vacation Bible School. You can do that out in the lobby. Don't forget to do that. Fathers, pick up the bottles that we have for you. At the exit doors, we have buckets with a gift for the fathers. Make sure you grab one before you go. God bless you guys.